Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Andy King, an actor, writer, and director whose credits include Scare Tactics, FX's Fargo, and Filth City, a comic farce about a crack mayor in a city not unlike Toronto, starring friend of the show Pat Thornton. And Andy returns as the craven J.D. Castlemaine in the fourth season of The Amazing Gale Pyle, launching this Thursday, March 29th on CBC Digital. Andy chose Airplane, the smash 1980 spoof from Jim Abrams, Jerry Zucker, and David Zucker that forged a new kind of comedy based on the loving replication of an existing non-comedic genre. And yeah, that's an analytical reading that removes all the funny from the equation. The movie, though, is nothing but funny. A note-perfect satire of disaster films, with Robert Hayes and Julie Haggerty playing ex-lovers forced back together during a crisis in the sky as a handful of bozos on the ground do their best to help. Featuring Leslie Nielsen, Robert Stack, Lloyd Bridges, and Peter Graves sending up their alpha male careers, and the weirdest cameos from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Ethel Merman in cinema history, it's a funhouse ride that just keeps on giving. There's one small thing. I got the release year wrong like four seconds into the conversation because I'm an idiot and Andy was polite enough not to correct me. Anyway, we got past it. This is someone else's movie. Well, Airplane's a movie for me that it just goes back to my childhood, I guess. I don't even know what year it came out, but I... 1980, 81, maybe. 81, so I was about yeah. five years old, okay. four or five years old. But I watched a lot of movies as a kid. We got, you know, my friends had a VCR early. There weren't a lot of... We'd go down to the movie store, there weren't a lot, and we were really into comedy. And, God, we must have watched it, you know, dozens and dozens of times, just our favorite movie. I can remember my friend Randy Morgan who works in locations here in Toronto now, and, and I would just, you know, just consume it over and over again. So we were obsessed with it. We were obsessed with the lines. We were obsessed with everything. But I didn't realize, like, I have kids now, and, you know, my son's nine, my daughter's seven. And I don't know if I, I still wouldn't show it to them. I don't think. <laughs> There's just a lot of... I was trying to think about that, yeah. It would be... I saw it in theaters three or four times, I think. I, re- I mean, I remember one... Uh, one really crappy day in the winter I remember it as winter maybe I don't even know I, I like I basically took the I cut school took the day and went to the Yorkdale theater and saw the Empire Strikes Back and Airplane back to back just because was there a lot of hype for Airplane at that time like I mean everybody was talking about it there was there was I, I was 11 maybe or 12 no wait I must have been older than that I was 12 or 13 and um I remember there being a lot of talk at school. Uh, I was in junior high and people were just, kids were talking about it constantly because it was this, it was a transgressive movie that we could get into. Like we couldn't have gotten into Animal House. We, uh, the Blues Brothers had just sort of blown past us, I think, culturally. Because it didn't, it di- I don't think it landed in Canada the way it did in America. Hmm. But Airplane was... We were too young to have known the reference points. We didn't see it as parody. We just saw it as this insane comedy that was funny when it shouldn't be funny. Yeah. And that, like, casting Robert Stack and, and uh, Leslie Nielsen and Lloyd Bridges in, in comic roles that were identical to the roles they used to play, it's a masterstroke. That is the masterstroke, I think, of the whole film. And just having seen it again recently, just the, the tone they get with it yeah. is unbelievable because... You know, they've got an Elmer Bernstein score, and they're bringing these heavyweight actors, you know, from the 60s and 70s into it. 
and they're playing it straight. And it's the dumbest stuff that's <laughs> in the world that's happening, but they play it straight. And I think, I mean, that particular vibe, it only occurred to me recently, has a strong influence on stuff that I've done because it's always about trying to get to the absurd, but in a very straight way. Right. But uh, just watching it again, I was just I was just blown away. Also, by just how funny it is and how committed they are to every joke. Like, within seconds, I was dying... And they, they put so much into every joke that they get along the way. And like you, I didn't know it was a parody. Right. Apparently they did parody it off this movie, Zero Hour. Mm-hmm. And they had to end up buying the rights to this movie because they, they took it so closely. That's amazing. I did not know that. Yeah, which is crazy. But um, I, I have not seen that movie, so I don't know how close it was. But yeah, for it's me... It's dead I, on. Is like, it dead it on? It is the same story. It's kind of incredible. I, I saw it, I don't know, 20 years ago now maybe? It was on... It was the revived because of Airplane. It was like, this is the movie that Airplane was based on and just circulated briefly. And it's it's not very good uh, because now it's broken. Like it, it would be like, well, it's like trying to watch Leslie Nielsen in anything dramatic from the 50s or 60s. Right. Like Forbidden Planet is hard to watch now yeah, because yeah, he's yeah. doing the same thing he does, but it's supposed to be stentorian and serious. Yeah. Well, and, and especially with the same plot, I'm sure you're just like, something's missing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like, the anarchy is missing. Yeah. Um, everybody, when people get food poisoning in the in Zero Hour, they just kind of slump. It's not as interesting. <laughs> right. But the, the, the way that Airplane uses this completely po-faced, dull idea, you know, the you're a pilot, you're traumatized, you have to fly the plane, and spins it into the most just delirious, like hallucinatory comedy. I I had never seen anything like it. And then I caught up a few years later to Kentucky Fried Movie, which has a similar parody sequence of mm-hmm. the, the oh, I can't remember the I can't remember the name of the Enter the Dragon parody. Yeah, it is but, yeah, it's one of the Bruce Lee movies, obviously. Yeah. And it's again, it's a dead on parody and it's note perfect, but it's not as good because Landis is directing it, and it's just a different point of view somehow. Mm-hmm. When when Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker get on their own vibe together, they form this. They they I don't know, like they force us into their into their brains. Like it's like you're watching. Oh, what is it? it's like Mystery Science Theater before there was Mystery Science Theater. You're enjoying how bad this movie is, and the movie knows it, and the filmmakers are inviting you into it. Well, it's the that's a strange thing though that you bring up because see it doesn't. In some ways, because the comedy is so absurd, they're winking, but they're also not winking, mm-hmm. right? And they're not being that accessible because, it, and it allows it that the interesting thing about Airplane compared to Kentucky Fried Movie and some of those other ones is it's not just a series of sketches. Right. It's very much like a, a strong plotted movie, and probably because they stole a plot, <laughs> but but they really commit to that, and it's just amazing to me how they balance so many characters over the course of it, and of course. When I saw it recently, I analyzed just where the, you know, you're always, when you write stuff, you like, oh, where's the plot or where's act one end? They actually have a very long, it, it, it takes a long time for them to get food poisoning. Yeah. They yeah. spend so much time on Ted Stryker's backstory and, you know, of course, the Peace Corps and all that stuff That's and everything right. with Elaine. And they, 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 like it goes on forever. It's not until like 40 minutes into the movies that anyone gets food poisoning, which you would think would be sort of the, the end of the first act. So they really... Like, they're doing jokes, but they spend a long time building their characters and everything yeah, as well, yeah. which you don't see in those sketchy movies that are all cut up. And, um, yeah, it was just a... It was really mind-blowing to see again, and I, I realized how influential it is, too, you know? Oh, yeah. The one thing you don't see today, too, I find is just these 
the intense commitment to these jokes. Uh, one in particular that struck me was they call Captain Over's wife to just to tell her that there's been a problem with the plane right. and she should get down to the airport. Like, that's the only purpose of the scene. Yeah. And she's, of course, in bed with a horse. She's supposed to be having an affair, but she's in bed with a horse. And she's like, I got to go down and the horse whinnies. But it's a real horse. <laughs> and it's like a fully real horse. And then the horse, like, turns at the right moment and whinnies. And just as a filmmaker, you know how complex that would have been and how many people would have said, like, do we have to have a real horse? Like, just put a head in. It's a, it's a five-second scene. It's a ten-second scene. But they go for it. Yeah. And it just makes it that much better. I'm thinking of stuff like, well, just the amazing structure of the running gags, the the pacing for those two. It's it knows when to leave the cabin of the airplane, it knows when to go to a bigger sequence, it knows when to pull back and, and focus. There yeah, and maybe it is simply because the rhythms are, are built into the spine of, of Zero Hour, but even just the way they add the great running gag of everyone hating Stryker. Oh, I'm really so bored him. by him, too. Yeah. And the, the woman hangs herself listening to his story. Yeah, he's a hero that nobody likes. I know, it's true. Like, nobody's into Stryker. And this time through, I just realized how deeply buried that is. Like, nobody liked him before. Nobody liked him <laughs> in his crisis. No one is sympathetic to <laughs> Elaine is kind of. But not really. No, she's pretty upset for most of it that yeah. he followed her. Yeah. Yeah, she's annoyed. And it's... Um, I mean, what is it, 40 years later now almost? And it still lands. Those jokes are really It's really, funny. yeah, it's nonstop. And I think that uh, you're right. The runners are, are perfect. The way they keep everything going, they keep everything balanced, and it's nonstop. Another thing I noticed is, like, if they have to do exposition, they never do exposition unless there's something else funny going on in the back of the scene. Yes. Right? Yeah. So so they're always doing a joke. So, they're, so they're, there's never really a dull moment. Like, there's that scene where... I believe it's Captain Over and just the pilots discussing the weather. So it's a setup to, to say that there's going to be bad weather. Yeah. But meanwhile, the guy's working on the hood. Right. Of, <laughs> he's popped the hood of the plane and then he's trying to close the hood and he falls off. So that's all going on while they're giving you the boring parts. Yeah. Um, I've seen in the asylum that's supposed to have all the details about what's wrong with Stryker. And you've got the... I mean, there's actual Ethel Merman moments. Oh, my God. They got her, that to, they got her in there. Uh, Ethel Merman's in it. I mean, that the Asylum actually has one, one of my favorite jokes of the whole thing, where he's painting. Um, you know, he's trying to stay calm, or he's he's sort of rattled by this raid over Macho Grande, so they've got him in the hospital. He's painting to kind of, you know, keep his mind, I guess, in a good place. And Elaine comes to see him, and we, they reveal his painting, and of course it's just the most horrific yeah. painting with this army guy with his leg over his neck and an exploding jeep and he's holding a baby yeah, and it's just, just insane carnage but it's it's total carnage and it's it's absurd carnage but they don't just leave it there they carry on with the conversation with him and elaine and then a couple seconds later you hear hey striker can i take a break and we reveal that it's the actual scene that yeah. he's painting it's not just out of his mind he's actually staged this in the asylum so it's sort of like you can't even believe it you know yeah, it's so funny, and they they compound like they build on top of each other. Yeah, it's the, I mean, it really it feels improvised more or less, and not in terms of even a given scene, but just the everything in it is a pylon on something else. It's the yes and game, that, yes, that goes for ninety minutes and is an airplane movie. I mean, they just found a way to pack all this stuff in, and then um, you, oh, I've forgotten the name of the actor who plays Johnny, but when he shows up. And it's halfway through the film, easily, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's a late addition. Yes. But it is an idea too great to not put in. Yes. You can just sort of feel them, oh, no, 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 we, we can all 
also give him some space. And he becomes the, the button on three or four different scenes. Well, yeah, and incredibly, like, for me, when I was, because I was so young when mm. I saw it, he was my favorite part. Okay. And I spoke to a friend of mine uh, recently who showed his kids, who were about eight or nine, uh, Airplane, and I was like, you showed that to them? And I asked him what was their favorite part, and of course it was Johnny. It's it's the kids thing. It's so it's so absurd. It's mm. it's sort of like absurd inside the absurd. And of course, at that age, I couldn't get the references of yeah, the Lloyd coding. Bridges and all this yeah. stuff, sniffing glue, you know, which I I love now, obviously. Yeah. But. And Johnny being coded as flamboyantly gay goes right past you. Right past too. Yeah, I just yeah, he's like a children's entertainer. He's more like, he's a, like a child. A, yeah, yeah, you know, and he's making the hat and he's saying the the dumbest thing. So yeah, that that I remember being my favorite character at that age. Yeah. Of course, later, you know, McCroskey and, you know, obviously Robert Stack is just so incredible. I was trying to figure it out, um, thinking back on it. It's like, I think I knew, I knew most of them from TV. I watched television a lot when I was a kid because there was really, you know, it was the 70s. There was literally nothing else to do <laughs> except go outside and who's going to do that? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I knew a lot of the faces from things, but I couldn't, I was too young to really understand where they fit. Mm-hmm. And so the authority that those actors bring worked for me, I assume the same way it probably worked for Paramount when they're making this movie that your safety is you're paying a lot of these actors very little because they're, they're session guys now, essentially. <laughs> yeah. That's who've been sort it. of yep. going through, like they were all in Columbo and they were all, they were doing television and this came along and we can get them. It's they're available. Why not? And I remember an interview, I think it was with Abrams somewhere where he said that, um, it was Lloyd Bridges who didn't know what to how to play it. And he said, just do it. Just do it the way you would do it. We'll make it funny. And that's the genius of it, right? Like, it creates a context for these straight performances that is hysterically funny. It's hard to believe because Lloyd Bridges, like, yeah, he feels like like a comedian doing it because well, yeah. it's so Hanging good. upside down by the end of it. Oh, God. And jumping out the window yeah. and, like, you know, and just, just every moment with him. You know, uh, there's that one where he's ordering everyone to do everything, you know. He's like, uh, he's like, go get the weather report, you know. Like, uh, I want the radar mask right away. And then his wife calls. He's like, I want the kids in bed by three. I want yeah. the, you know, he he's flawless to me. I, I can't get over it. But it's something about the Zucker Abrams connection. Like, like that... You don't actually see that anymore in, in a lot of the parody films they do. Oh, God, no. The new ones, I was trying to figure out how, like, at what point it all went to, to garbage. And I think it was around the movie movies, epic movie. And yeah, I agree. Epic. They're trying to do the same thing, but then they're not, you're not casting the same heavyweights. It's a totally different style. And it is a commitment thing to wanting it to be a certain way. Again, the, the, like, look at the score. Like, like, you feel the energy of it. It feels very much like a movie with like this anarchy that you mentioned, right? Yeah. But you know, there's a joke early on where Stryker's talking about um, how he, you know how he first met Elaine, and they're in that disco club, and yes, uh, and it's a really rough Saturday club. Fever. Yeah, and the Saturday yeah. Night Fever bit. But he talks about uh, just what a what a dive it was and what a rough place. And you see a guy getting stabbed and stuff. But um, then they put these two girl guides in there. And they start a fight over a card game. And right. that is just a stupid joke to put girl guides, like women dressed in girl guy costumes, in, in that. Like, ultimately, it's a dumb joke. But they commit so hard. Like, they're actual stunt women. Yeah, and their yeah. fight is so insane that within <laughs> seconds, you're completely caught up in it. And they, they're, like, throwing each other and, like, down the bar and kicking down the stairs. And so it's, it's like that. It's like this commitment to just do a really dumb joke the best way you possibly can, yeah. you know? And that's what I love about it. Well, it won't let you reject it. 
Right. Right? Like, it just barrels through every single possible response, every single possible resistance to, well, that's not funny. It's like, fuck you. Yes, it is. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep doing it until you laugh. Yes. And, I mean, I remember thinking, well, not, I don't remember. I I was trying to figure out how much of it would still be possible. Because it's... It's not as aggressively misogynist as a lot of the other stuff around that time. There's that early conversation uh, about the the loading zones, the white zone, and, yes. which immediately, within five minutes of starting this film, leads into, you want me to have an abortion. Oh, this, I uh, know. And dropping that in 1981 is a pretty big thing. Yeah, that's I heavy. I don't know if you could pull that joke out now. And in the background, the striker, striker, striker line, which ends with a man belting a woman across the face, that probably wouldn't make it. Well, they slap uh, the other, uh, remember the lineup to slap the other um, uh, traveler who's freaking out. That's when, right. uh, And, you know, she's the one who's like, Ted, or uh, John never drinks coffee at home. That that woman. And then she gets hysterical, and then they're all lining up with the bat and the belt or whatever. Yeah, yeah there's, there is quite a lot of abuse in general, and I mean, I think a lot of old comedy stuff has abuse. Mm-hmm. It is, I would say, you could definitely make an argument that it's misogynistic. I mean, it is culturally at that time, I can think of so many things that were much more like that. Sure. And well, that's it, right? Like, there's a... This film has a good-naturedness behind it somehow yes. that a lot of the other ones don't. And that's the thing that didn't carry forward into the other parodies. You know, the Wayans stuff, the scary movie films, they doubled down on gross out and excess and cruelty in comedy and gay panic jokes and everything else it, it's like this, the first two scary movies the second one is the first one's kind of fun because Anna Ferris convinces you that it's okay she's going along with everything and the second one just turns into long stretches that replicate other films mm-hmm. which is never what Zucker Abrams and Zucker did they mm-hmm. made their own thing out of the old thing mm-hmm well, yeah, and it's that's the question, though, that I have, because I haven't seen Zero Hour, and I believe you have. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, sometimes, like, when you know the reference, you go, oh, they're just lifting this. Right. But then when you don't know the reference, you think it's sort of cl- clever and creative. I mean, again, I would just say that the Zucker Abrams, Zucker, it's definitely coming from a different place than the Wayans are, for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, And then the guys who made Meet the Spartans, an epic movie, and, and those those films are just... I'm not even going to say their names, mostly because I can't remember them, but they're, they're beneath contempt. They're simply, hey, Britney Spears. It's a cash grab because it's in the news or popular or culturally relevant yeah. that, that year. They you parodied know? the Twilight series with this thing, Vampires Suck. I had to see that. I don't remember any of it, except that they couldn't even get actors who kind of looked like them. It was just so lazy and so casually. Date movie was the other one. Date movie, yeah. epic movie. Uh, Many. Meet the Spartans, Vampires Suck. I think there's one more, and then and then you have um, Marlon Wayans going off and making a haunted house and those things where they're just they're just not. There's no inspiration. It's simply feeding on the corpse of something else that was successful. And yeah, that's and I agree. And do you know what it is? It's like the Zucker Abrams Zucker approach, especially in Airplane. Like to me, at least, they they elevate it to an art form. Like, it really, truly is. They're trying to make a movie that, that has the semblance of these these things. It has its own dramatic push forward. And and yet all this chaos can happen. And they, like I said, they commit to every joke. They're not just... There's nothing that's a throwaway. I mean, it's interesting you said earlier that it feels like improv. I think... I, I'd be very curious to know what the writing sessions were like. I feel like that's maybe where they improv, where they just kept pushing harder more and more. But then... To make this movie, it must have been just all technical. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, oh no, you'd have to have everything planned out. Yeah. Uh, just, the, just 
the, the, the restrictions that they placed on themselves, uh, which then allow them to create these great big playsets, but they're still locked in. You have the inside of an airplane, you have the air traffic center, you have some cars. That's about it, right? There's not much else that you can use. I was fascinated by that, too. There's sort of an illusion going on because it really does feel like an airport and a plane and all these things. And there's that shot of the plane crashing through the window. I don't know if that was stock footage they got or something. Yeah. But but there's some big I mean, set pieces. It felt, it felt pretty major, yeah. Yeah, there's some big set pieces. But I was wondering, you know, it was ultimately, they said, a very low-budget movie. So I was thinking, you know, how could they do that? But I guess they, they were still a studio film, you know. Yeah, it's Paramount. They, they have some access. Yeah. And, and it must make it, I mean, it obviously made it easier to get some of the cast on board, but it still feels like it got away. Like, it feels like, it doesn't feel like it was released. It feels like it escaped. It was so odd that no one knew what to do. No one, nobody knew how to refer to it. Was it a parody? Was it a spoof? Was it a satire? It's all of those things. And the only thing apparently we could agree on was that we all loved it. Uh, that's the thing. It just hits everyone so big. And it made so much money. It was yeah. an instant success. It spoke for itself. And it's a, it's a cultural reference to this day. I mean, like, you know, you can just, you know, I'm looking at the picture of the cover here with, uh, what's his name? The Auto. autopilot. Yeah. Auto, the autopilot. Because, of course, it's auto. Right, right? of course. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you, you, I've seen that image show up in different things lately or, you know, recently. And people get it. And like you said, what is it, 40 years old or something? It's so It's about to be, yeah. It's about to be 40 years old. I don't like to think about these things. 37 right now. But, uh, yeah, it's... Um, Did anyone do a parody type film like this before this i know woody allen had done like uh what's up tiger lily where he overdubbed he another movie yeah he or the entire film there's um i mean there's stuff in i guess love and death is the closest he came because it is a scattershot parody of russian literature right but again that is so specific and so oh it's i mean it it's ludicrous and pretentious it's funny i really like love and death but um it is the kind of film that's like narrow casting even then, where he's doing that for a very, very small audience. And Sleeper, kind of, sort of. You can see the gags fiction. a little bit. Some of the gags he came up with, Woody Allen, that maybe was an influence. but Yeah, there's genre pastiches more than they are specific parodies, I yeah. guess. And with this, it's... Um, this is more... I, I should point out that that noise is the dog snoring. <laughs> if the recorder picks it up. He's it's bored. Not, there, are, there are times he is... Uh, there was one episode... We did one with Scott Thompson where Dexter liked him so much that he basically cuddled up and fell asleep on his chest. <laughs> oh, man. And you can hear him snoring halfway through the episode and it sounds like I'm bored and going... <sighs> so that's not what's happening. This I'm jealous Dexter, now. I'm Dexter jealous of Scott now. Making himself known. Dexter didn't really pay too much attention. Well, but. it was the old place. We only had one couch. Okay. Okay, I see good. I feel better. And meanwhile, just buzzsawing. Um, weirdly enough... There he is. <laughs> yeah. The, the movie I, I think of now in, in the most logical inheritor of, of what Airplane does is Hot Fuzz. Yes. Uh, Edgar Wright's film where you have a more conscious conversation going on because the audience is sophisticated enough 25 years on after Airplane to get that the movie is specifically invoking these things in order to send them up later affectionately with love like Shaun of the Dead is a zombie movie but Hot Fuzz is a film with specific parodies mm -hmm. uh, referencing Bad Boys 2 and, and Point Break which are referenced within the film as existing yeah and like you said there's a level of sophistication to it which I think that's maybe the difference because 
as you said earlier, I mean, those parody movies like Epic Movie and whatnot do take sequences or do what specific references, but they're so blunt yeah. and boring. But, you know, Shaun of the Dead is making it into its own film or Hot Fuzz makes it into its own film. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, there again, I just think there is a level of sophistication. It's what's fascinating to me about it is, you know, loving it as a kid in just the most simple way. And then, you know, 40 years later being able to go like, oh, my God, it's so it's so advanced. And so in terms of filmmaking, so technical and, you know, commitment and everything. But there is a level of sophistication. It's not people always say with comedy, they're always like. You know, if you do a stupid joke, it's really easy to get dismissed and people won't take your thing seriously anymore. Right. But to me, that's what's so great about these guys is it's like they'll go for the dumbest joke, but they do it in such an intelligent way. And, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the um, by, just by establishing a romantic through line and then complicating it in every way possible by using a an existing story, it gives them the spine that justify plus the ticking clock right the airplane is going to crash and everyone's going to there's die. a lot of drama yeah a lot yeah. of yeah a lot of stakes <laughs> you have an inherent uh momentum and i think that was their stroke of genius not just that they were going to make another airplane movie and this is only you know it was in production a year after the concord airport 79 that was still a technically viable franchise they were still making them at universal right uh so this was arriving this was you know, a contemporary product of satire. It also was, I, I think, on the heels of a, a wave of disaster films. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so it was definitely in the zeitgeist that way. Because that's another one, disaster movie. Didn't Ugh, they do that? Yes, and superhero movie. Right, it was the same team. Those are just, those they're are... just really bad. I, I think it's also the level of talent though that they brought to the table in Airplane. I mean, even Robert Hayes. And recently, I, I remember hearing. I can't remember who the other guy they were going to cast was. It was someone famous. Oh yeah. But they went with Hayes for some reason because I think they thought he was more emotional. But he is—he's great. Yeah, like he's just an incredible performance from him. Yeah, he's—he's uh, he's beleaguered in a way. That oh I my god! Endlessly adorable. Yeah. Even when he's dancing in that disco sequence, and he's supposed to be on top of the world, you can sort of see him counting his steps in his head and just being really careful. But that's again a great dance sequence. Yeah. I mean, it's got comedy beats. Remember, he throws her up in the air and she doesn't come down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing with very the te- flying off and coming back. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, I mean, very technical, very, you know, but they pull it all off with such... I mean, it just must have been so complicated to do it all. That's what I find so fascinating. Yeah, Because yeah. it seems like this fun chaos, and yet it must have been so meticulous. Oh, sure. Well, the, you know, I'm always thinking about the, the visual gags in um, in Top Secret, that followed, yeah. uh, where you know you have the giant stamp and you have the big phone, the phone. And all these things. They had to build those. You can't just yeah. do that. Yeah. And airplane, I got the sense they were working with a lot of available parts, but they knew where everything went. All the pieces are in place. Everything has to be. I mean, I don't know how many takes they got of everything, but it has to be meticulous so you can go crazy inside of it. Well, think about how many characters even they have yeah. in the film. I mean, yeah. most people, once you start to introduce that many characters, like they start to lose sense of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, but they manage to stop and pause with all these characters and, and just bring this huge tapestry to the table. It's it's quite remarkable. Yeah, it's got all the frenzy and, and, and sort of colliding desire of something like it's a mad, 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 mad world, but in a third the time. And at double the speed. It's just, it's frenetic. And even, you know, you have these little throwaway characters with um, the, the two guys who, who speak jive, which yeah. I really, I remember thinking, I was sort of cringing at the thought of that scene. And it, 
they keep their dignity. Like, that's not a bad scene. I it's thought not, about that one, too. Yeah. Like, well, could you do that today? Yeah. And I do think you could. As I thought it was going to be. Yeah, because I think if you had two guys in some kind of a hip-hop slang or street slang or mm-hmm. whatever that, that was impenetrable to someone else, you could still do it, you know? Yeah. It doesn't even really matter if they were black guys, like if they were two sort of white guys discussing. You sort of have that sense that you're isolating them, I guess, yeah. in the group. and it comes that... right up to the edge of othering them. Yes, absolutely. But uh, but it is sort of a fun gag, and they feel like they're in on the gag. Yeah, because we get to understand what they're saying, we understand that they're kind of amused and frustrated, just like everybody else on the plane. It actually makes them more normal by letting us understand what they're saying, which I think if you left the subtitles out, it would be awful. Yes. But by showing us what their what their intentions are, it's like, oh, no, they're exactly the same as you or I would be in this ridiculous situation. They're probably the calmest people on the plane. Absolutely. They're, and, you know, I don't know, a joke like the Barbara Billingsley or whoever, the mom from Leave it to Beaver right. coming up and goes, uh, you know, stewardess, I speak jive. Yes. I mean, it's too good. I don't know... Yeah, it would be Florence Henderson now. Is yeah, it's someone who we have to recognize and instantly love as the perfect mom and very clean and everything. And then suddenly she's speaking job. I mean, it's just a one of those contrasts that makes comedy great. Yeah, and it's again when it happens, it's completely unexpected. It's something that you just no matter what you think is going to happen in an airplane movie in 1981, that's not it. it <laughs> and that happens over and over and over again. And that's the thing that that these guys do that no one else does or did. And still, no one else does because they've stopped, and now we're sad. Like we're David Zucker made a couple of the scary movie sequels, and they're fine. Yeah. But and Basketball, and it's I enjoy Basketball, but that's a that's a film that's a war between the people making it and the guy directing it. Right. Like Stone and Parker clearly did a couple of rewrites, and the styles don't always mesh. It seems like a different style. Yeah. Whereas whereas Hot Shots kind of continued it because that was Abrams. Yeah. And and they had some good stuff in those too as well. Yeah, and the Naked Gun movies, which is Naked Gun, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the funniest movie starring O.J. Simpson. <laughs> yes, that's indeed. Um, but the but but that's where we are now, right? Like everything, we're in a place now where everything is really fraught. Comedy is loaded, even more so than it used to be. And retroactively, other things are making it harder to appreciate uh, the things that we had. Airplane sort of sits in a pocket. That and, and Top Secret. Which, other than the anal intruder, anal invader scene, I I love without reservation. I think I, I think Top Secret's their best film. I I, I mean I'm going to go to the mattresses for that one. It's a high quality filmmaking because it's period too, right? And everything yeah, yeah. and it's World uh, War Two Elvis spy movie. Yes, uh, Val, with Val Kilmer. Kilmer being incandescent in his first major role. Yes, and the songs are amazing. I I have the soundtrack. I love those songs. Yes, again unironically, the they had this bright, shining moment in the 80s where they could do anything they wanted. And they made Police Squad and Naked Gun, the first one anyway, and the others came out in the 90s. But just, this is all, this the airplane is all of it. It's where it all comes from. Yes. I mean, well, and of course they, you know, they took Leslie Nielsen out of Airplane because sure, it was yeah. so amazing and put him in the Naked Gun and Police Squad. I mean, if anyone hasn't seen the uh, Police Squad TV series, which you can see most of it on YouTube, is mm-hmm. unbelievable. Yeah, there's a DVD, too, with a couple of, I think, a couple of special features. Only six episodes. Yes. Obviously, was never going to be long for this world because it was too weird for network. Yeah. But you recontextualize that as a feature film, and you make three of them. They just, they printed money. Massive hit. Yeah. Yeah, huge hit. And I can remember going to see Naked Gun in a theater and... Uh, 
right, like just having that communal experience of people like crying, like yeah. just absolutely just dying. You know what I mean? And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's well, that, a, that was what the first airplane was for me. The first time I saw it, it was mostly the adults who were just sort of paralytic with laughter because they were getting it on a level I wasn't. And I was, you know, as a as a tween, it was just like, this is really funny. I'm yeah. into this. I will come back and watch for more jokes. And you could. You could go back. And, and movies played forever. I mean, I know it played for months here. I mean, when I saw Empire, it was over almost a year later. Wow. And it was the same day. Films just ran because they could. And the last time when I went to see it by myself at the Yorkdale, it was, I was almost alone. It was a matinee at a shopping mall on a weekday. Um, and I could just sort of look at it. I had seen it enough that I was familiar with it and I was just, maybe this is even the beginning of, of what I would end up doing, but I wanted to take it apart. I wanted to know why it was funny and understand what it was. And I got distracted and ended up laughing too much. Well, that's just it. I think, like you said, it's a world, it's like most things I think uh, that people make, there's sort of this intangible quality of like, can you just, like you said, you want to look at it. Like you want to live in it. Like you want to sort of explore that world. And Airplane just brings you right in, I think. Don't you think, Norm, too, that like now we could use something like this in our absurd times to really go like heavy with the, you know, we have satire, we have our Colbert's and we have all these other things. But to, to sort of encapsulate the absurd times we live in now, I would love to see someone do something at this level yeah. and just what, tear it apart. What would you do, though? Like, where do you even start? What That's the problem, right? Because as soon as you think of something insane, it happens. Now. Yes. I think we've reached the point where we all have the ability to make things real by worrying about them it's weird i mean now it, it is especially in the trump administration it's so much harder to yeah to yeah. satire anything to parody anything because it's real the next day like you said mm-hmm. and the other thing i find about actually nowadays is you know trying to come up with ideas or satirical ideas anything like that um you it's almost hard to compete with what reality <laughs> yeah like in my own attention is focused a lot on reality it's like we're all watching the greatest reality show, reality show of all time right, and the stakes are turn it off and it won't stop it won't stop it's on every channel and the stakes are nuclear war so yeah. you know what i mean how do you compete yeah, with yeah. that but i you know the satirists right now have more um more sort of importance i guess and more power than i mean you can watch stephen colbert and get more out of it than watching the news because the news just they don't know how to really yeah. talk about anything because they don't want to be too they're either too harsh and too kind of reactionary or hysterical or they're trying to play both sides when they shouldn't even be whereas I find satire just cuts to the heart of it but I'm digressing all I'm saying no, is that it, it's all relevant it's important these days and uh, you know although these guys weren't doing anything necessarily political it's just that chaos and anarchy and the willingness to just go so deep on the jokes I would just love to see someone with that spirit just tackle uh, our times. Yeah, I I worry that the person who does it will be uh, wildly unqualified. Mm-hmm. Like it'll be it'll be an accident. And no one will see it coming. That suddenly this film will arrive that predicts the thing that happens six months later. I mean, you know, everybody with Trump, everybody brought up Wag the Dog, which is naive because in Wag the Dog, it's people scrambling to contain a situation. It's not Trump. It's the people around him. And we know that the people around him aren't that bright. Mm -hmm. So it's disappointing that fiction is more comforting in that even when it's a satire of a presidency derailed by sexual uh, malfeasance and and then the, the mendacity around that, 
there's more on the ball because it's a screenwriter who's thought it through than there is in watching people in the real world reacting to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking of, um, oh, there's some other perfect example. Shit, what was it? Um, now oh, it's gone. A film? Yeah, recently too. Oh, um, actually, uh, weirdly enough, Parker and Stone with with That's My Bush, that show they they came up with in early 2001. Oh, okay. Uh, where George Bush, it was a sitcom that they said that whoever won the election. They pitched Comedy Central on a sitcom about that president. So it would be either Gore or Bush uh, just bumbling around playing the role of a suburban house husband who's also the president. So every now and then he would talk to his neighbor like Wilson from Home Improvement and then he would have awkward dinners with the kids and one of them would want to be a rebel about something. And then it was Bush. So that just led to kind of a perfect format because he's already this genial doofus. Mm -hmm. And then 9-11 happens, like, well, we can't do this anymore, and they just shut the show down. Right. But that was kind of on the ball of, of understanding a persona so well that you can build a show around it while still telling the truth about this guy, which is that he's in over his head, he's wildly unqualified, he probably shouldn't be president, but you, you know, it was the whole thing extrapolated from, he seems like a really nice guy to have a beer with. Right. And you couldn't do that with Trump. Well, that's a weird thing. Actually, they're doing right. Colbert's doing a everybody. Car there's a cartoon. There's there's the president show with uh, Tony Adams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, I haven't seen the Colbert cartoon yet. But yeah. the president show is really good. But it's not funny. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's yeah. great at showing you the like the the id and the neediness, and it becomes like his Trump is a tragic occasionally self-aware monster mm -hmm. and it's amazing it's riveting tell i saw him do it live with james adomian uh two years ago before the election right which uh, is how they because he was doing bernie trump versus adomian. bernie yeah yeah and it was an incredible show it ended with um adamantic reading a poem as trump and it's just i am chaos i am destruction i will ruin everything and you're going to let me and everything about it was right everything yeah. you saw into his soul found this little marble and just choked on it well the crazy thing about trump is that everybody knows who he is yeah you know i mean it's he's still endlessly fascinating as a character because you just can't believe that he's gotten away with it i guess yeah but you know everyone's like you know other people would be um sunk by this point like if a porn star came out other presidents would be sunk it's like yeah because we all know trump's a piece of shit like he's he's set the bar so low yeah there's no bottom so there is no bottom. I, I saw actually it was a great comment the other day. Someone was like, rock bottom, where the hell are you? But uh, it's true. Like, there is no bottom. So, But that's not a good place to be. Like, it's it's like, oh, yeah, like, we're not upset that he slept with a porn star because we already expected that he's such a, you know, piece of garbage. But, you know, when that's your sort of going mentality, that's a horrible place to be. It's almost like, I don't even know if people want to see political satires or, or something. Like, it's almost like everyone's like, enough yeah i'm also just talking about myself and what i want to see and whatnot like i want to see that but then at the same time what's the thing that's going to kind of like what's i don't know just like bring us all together in sort of a grand scheme not just analyzing the politics does that make sense i don't know yeah yeah, yeah. i'm it's... just sort of yeah i'm fascinated by it now because like i could watch political satires all day but when you look at a greater cultural impact, you're just looking across the board. And I mean, we started this discussion about airplanes. Well, that's what I'm saying. I was thinking it has no political uh, compass. It really doesn't, except for, again, like I think all these sort of um, aggressive male guys who are just sort of like more pig-headed and doing things for their own reasons, which I guess in the end they do get the plane down, but Kramer's just such a jerk. Yeah. And uh, But you're right. There's nothing, I would say... It's really apolitical. There's nothing really going on there. Yeah. It's a crisis. And 
I mean, we kind of... The, the ending is never in doubt. We, I, I don't think it was ever going to crash. No. Um, and I don't think you could even do that now in a parody where everybody dies. Or really in a movie. I mean, that, in a mainstream movie, let's mm. say. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, an, it's a, the objective is the rescue, the, the safe landing, the salvation. It's just how they get there, I guess. And, and they did it great. Look, they, they, they got us there. I mean, all the sweat coming down or they did that whole gag. Like, yeah. they did, they, that moment when he was landing the plane is everything, you know? So yeah. they really did ramp it up. It's to the point where the only other time I've seen a similar scene since is uh, that Kurt Russell Halle Berry movie Executive Decision where he has to land the plane it's it. it's a straight film it's not a comedy I mean it's kind of it's eccentric but he's um, an anti-terrorist expert who's recruited onto this mission he, he shows up in a tuxedo because they basically pick him up outside of a dinner and Steven Seagal is leading the mission and the big twist is that Seagal gets killed oh. 15 minutes in like he's not he doesn't make this this elaborate plane to plane transfer he doesn't make it the rest of the team is injured I, I want to say Oliver Platt or John Leguizamo, somebody in there is like basically the expert is tranquilized halfway through because he breaks his back and, and it all comes down to Russell saving the day from these terrorists who are going to release nerve gas all over the eastern seaboard from a 747. Obviously. And the, but the big scary moment is uh, that Kurt Russell, who's only ever flown a prop plane, I think, has to be talked down to land the plane with Halle Berry, who's one of the stewardesses. And it's just, you can't take it seriously. It's supposed to be the climax of the film and I'm just like, no. Yeah. This is how did you not know that 25 years ago there was a movie that did this better and funnier? That's the funny thing because you're getting all the drama out of the situation even though it's absurdly hilarious. Yeah. It's the music too, right? It's everything. Like they're putting it all together and and you know Kramer going down, down yeah. and you know he's pushing it down and he's sweating. So you're right, it does amp it up. As you said that, I was thinking of the Denzel Washington movie Flight. Too, right, right. Which where, has his plane crash in the first act, so at least it gets it out of the way. Yes. but And then he flips the plane over and right. all this stuff, so I guess it was a spin on it. Interesting film also. Um, you know, I found it interesting anyway, but but definitely the drama in Airplane, as you say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of processing this as you said it. It is true that you're getting that need. It's like you're scratching that itch. Yeah, no, all the parts are moving. Yeah. Like all the things are doing what they're supposed to do, but they're also really funny. Yeah. If you have any... I'm trying to think... Oh, I don't remember where I heard it, but it's it's obviously true. Uh, they said that the, their nod to Zero Hour was that the prop plane noise is played over every shot of the plane flying. You're not hearing jet engines, you're hearing a prop plane. And I think because that was the original film, was a smaller plane with, with prop engines. Okay. And I think that helps so much in unconsciously just telling people, don't, you know, don't worry about things. Yes. Like, it creates a discordant note every yeah. time on the plane. They cut back to that exterior and you hear, instead of a jet sound. And you can just, your brain is going, well, that's not right. That's right. I guess, yeah, it's funny because, you know, sound is... To, to me, I I came from uh, Chum actually. I worked in the Chum days, and there was uh, I didn't know that. the head of sound, uh, Bob Cook, uh, back then. Um, you know, of course, he was the head of sound, so he had he was biased, but he would always be like, "Sound is sixty percent of the game," yeah. you know, and he would always get really angry about it. But uh, but he is right, and and sound does so much subconsciously. I mean, I was thinking about that watching. Um, I thought even the Force Awakens to the Last Jedi, the sound mm-hmm. took a nose out. Like like J.J. Abrams got it more right. And it hit you in that, that emotional place. Sound, yeah. Just those sounds. And like, do you remember um, 
um, in the first Star Wars, uh, the New Hope or whatever, just the, the battle at the end with the X-Wing fighters and they had all the, it was more like a dog fight. Yeah, and like laser crossfire everywhere, yeah. All those little sounds and the rickety buckets, those things like create this sort of emotion. Now, to your point, I think you're probably exactly right. They're, they're exaggerating the soundtrack. So on a subconscious level, you know that it's not realism. Yeah. But yet, because the sound is all there, it still grabs you in a way. You know, I yeah. don't know. Well, the score is definitely working overtime to be a real musical score for, oh, yeah. for a thriller. And it's a great score. It's an amazing it's score. It's a really lively, fun, brassy score. Yeah. And I mean, think about what, what how it muscles through all that stuff at the airport at the beginning with their little theme song that they keep repeating. Yeah. yeah. And yet it takes you through all those jokes. Like, not every score can can support humor the same way and be serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, it's it's quite fascinating. I, watching Ghostbusters again a couple of years ago, which is also an Albert Bernstein score, that score is way more jokey. And, yes. And it's working in a way that the movie isn't. Quirky, yeah. Yeah, because it's bouncing and it's got horns, yeah. things like that. And the movie is this kind of dirty, gritty New York look. Agreed. Where they, they are not playing it for laughs yeah and i would i would argue that that's one of the weaker points of ghostbusters is that and i feel like that's reitman who's who's a little bit quirkier in his sensibilities yeah it's like he didn't trust the cut yeah when he saw it except that the score the song is terrific the musical score is actually like it's fighting with the soundtrack which is more poppy and and has the right tone it's sort of looser and 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 goofier yeah and the, the score is just trying really hard to get you to the big moments to get you to those horror moments yeah. like it suddenly goes into yeah. horror it's not so, consistent through the whole thing where it, yeah. yeah the airplane score really powers you through the entire movie but without ever joking about it without like ever joking and you don't really notice you're not like oh there's a lot of score here but it's so well done yeah by playing it straight it sells the comedy it's amazing one of the things I was going to bring up with you is uh, Airplane 2 I, yeah I was wondering if we should even because it's so inferior. It is, but what's interesting is they got... Okay, now again, I watched these when I was a little kid. Oh, I saw this in the theater too. So, but I was... I didn't learn until I was older that Ken Finkelman did it. And Ken yes. Finkelman, of course, being the uh, the great Canadian writer-producer and um, comedy director. Legend. Yep. Comedy legend. He did The Newsroom yep. um, on CBC and uh, a couple of other big things. Oh, yeah. Uh, four or five, I think, over the last few years. Yeah. Very strange guy in person. Uh, I don't think we've ever met. I, I went out for coffee with him, uh, or for a drink with him, and, uh, you know, looking for some advice, uh, you know, a few years back and whatnot, and just, you know, because I, I thought he was a very successful guy, uh, and I was um, inspired by him, and the fact he did Airplane 2, I'd found out, and all this stuff. But, uh, yeah, he's not really an advice kind of guy. Okay. <laughs> he regaled me with stories of his Hollywood days and whatnot, <laughs> but... Uh, and, and he had quite a successful career as a screenwriter. There's no question. I mean, he he was in these, this building at Paramount and all the stuff. And but anyway, he yeah. did Airplane Two. Part of the reason I I got to meet him was I had worked with his nephew on a project, and his nephew told me that when he was a kid, he'd walk, you know, he'd go visit his uncle, and he'd have like just a hundred thousand dollar check sitting on his desk from Airplane Two residuals, Jesus. like just just lying around. And he's like, oh, what's this? Oh, no, you know, throw it throw it on the other side. <laughs> but uh, I think he made a, a bundle of money. It, it's a big thing to step into Yeah. Uh, after Zucker, Abram Zucker. And in a way, I mean, to me, he pulled it off being a little kid, but I haven't watched it in 25 years. So Yeah, it does not hold up. It's, no. I mean, so much of it, too, is the, the, the it leans into the things that Airplane did effortlessly, just casting William Shatner and, and putting him in space 
and doing all of I mean, just going you don't go to space until the fourth movie that's the rule I don't know why they <laughs> did this in the second one but it just it, it jumps too far too fast and it's too ambitious without really understanding what made the original so great it is it sort of prefigures a bunch of the scary movie sequels in that well we're going to do these things that we vaguely recognize that the kids like mm-hmm. and Airplane is definitely I mean kids can appreciate it as, as we both proved but it's it holds up because it's made for adults. It's made for people who understand the material and enjoy the tweaking uh, while still being able to appreciate what works about it. And Airplane 2, just it's the same situation with different characters. or Sorry, it's the same situation in a different location. The same characters, the same problems, and none of them... There's no advancement. The new characters are very silly. The... Um, well, sometimes actually, when I thought back, I think a joke is from Airplane, and then I thought, and then it's like, oh no, it's Airplane too. Oh, yeah. So they did have quite a few gags. I mean, I, remember, I told my daughter about that. You know, just these dumb lines where it's like, that. Remember, uh, Elaine has a new boyfriend. I don't remember. Anyway, he gets into a conflict with uh, uh, Ted Stryker in the cockpit, and he's like, Stryker, I'd watch my step if I were you. And then he walks out the door and falls down a set of stairs. See, you know, like, the, but that's a great. It if was you're great. A kid, that's funny. I sure. As an adult, it just feels hacky. Yeah, I guess so. Because the, the one thing about airplane is that it doesn't do the thing you expect. Yeah. When it sets up a joke, it goes sideways. Yes and no, but I mean, they still have dumb lines in airplane. Who's oh, kidding? Sure. Who? You know, like. Um, well, the Shirley Runner. The Shirley Runner, though, but the Shirley Runner is great in its Poetry. own way. Yeah. But when, um, you know, it's like, oh, they're using instruments and then they're playing in a band That's or true, they're, yeah. or they're like, um, it's like almost Dada. Yeah. Just that weird pun follow, like a visual pun. Let's just, yeah, let's just find every place to pop something in, you know? And also, though, yeah, I do have respect for that because there's a layering to it in comedy where you're just trying to find more and more jokes. Mm-hmm. Another influence, actually, I think that Airplane. Yeah, I gave you was The Simpsons. Like The Simpsons, yeah, very yeah. much influenced by that style of Zucker Abram Zucker. And the pacing is very much pacing, and 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 the way they cut away to visual jokes and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and the absurd, but they maintain sort of a storyline. So, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Now I'm gonna have to see Airplane Two again, but that's for another podcast. Oh, don't do that. Just, <laughs> just remember it the way you remember it. It's probably funnier. Uh, so yeah, okay. Um, I was gonna ask you, do you have a single favorite line? Because mine has always been. Um, the the thing that has stuck with me forever, uh, which is Leslie Nielsen saying, um, "Is it? Uh, it was either the chicken or the fish." And he just says, "I had lasagna." Oh, yeah. It makes no sense. It's <laughs> so wonderful, and that's what I mean about swerving. It just that is not the answer you thought he would give. Yeah, and he just. But that's the thing. You can, what's so beautiful about those movies is you can just get away with it. Nobody's saying they're going. Wait a sec. There was no lasagna on the menu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've accepted the premise that everything's so crazy that yeah. you can just go with it. And he delivers it with such authority that again, you just wouldn't question it. Oh yeah, he delivers everything with such authority. Yeah. Wow, it's hard to pin it down to a, a particular line. I mean, I, it's got to be something from Akroski or Kramer. I would think uh, the Lloyd Bridges or the uh, Robert Stack character. Mm-hmm. I love. I used to love so much the speech that Kramer gets at the end. You know, he um, he's like, you know, strikers like that was some of the worst flying I've ever seen. But some of us down here would like to buy you a drink and you know, hand you a cigar. And then uh, you know, he just takes off the headphones, he leaves, and then you just hear Kramer go, "Cause you know, Ted, when the going got tough, yes. and he's still going on, and then we cut back to him three times, and he's still Christmas, Ted. What did that mean to you? <laughs> For me, that was a living hell. You ever get thrown down the mud and kicked in the head with an iron boot?" Of course he didn't. That never happened. Right. <laughs> no, nobody did that. Scratch that. Forget that. Like just totally absurd going on, and I don't know, man. It just—it's every moment. I, I found it to be, which is rare in comedy, a cumulative effect. Uh, you know, 
they get you with the one and then it starts to compound and that's the best kind of comedy when you go see a great stand-up who has great rhythm that's what'll happen you know you're already still laughing from the first one and then they push it further and further yeah, yeah. and that's what this movie does for me i mean i started to go i watched it about a month ago again i started to go right when um the, the white zone and red zone thing which actually little piece of trivia i found out there is that's a real couple that did white zone and red zone announcements I didn't know that. at some air at, at airports they were probably cheaper than this, right like it's <laughs> I mean, scale how crazy is that though and then they have this whole discussion and then that's going on in the background like you said about the abortion and everything and of course he leaves that guy in the taxi which they keep that's right that's the last shot in the film right last he's shot in the, the film he's still in the cab they keep that runner loyal but it's a it's a compound cumulative effect and uh it just keeps going and going so it's it i'm just endlessly impressed by just the, like the craftsmanship of it as a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't blame you. It's really, it's something. It really still is. Uh, so this does bring us to the final question of the podcast, which is, um, is there anything of Airplane specifically that you've borrowed or stolen or referenced or incorporated into your creative DNA? I think so. Like that's what kind of occurred to me, you know, watching it again was that, you know, I didn't think I had really, I mean, I've always been a, a comedy guy, but I think it's that tone and I'm, I wouldn't say I've got it just yet, but I've I've sort of internalized it and I've been looking for it my whole life. Yeah. It's just that tone where things are completely absurd and you have the freedom to just kind of, like you said, he can just say lasagna and it's okay. Yeah. But then a sense of realism at the same time. Like I, I'm not a huge fan of stuff that's just absurd for absurdity's sake. Like I, I like it when it's brought down to a realistic level and it's not winking at the audience and it's deadpan. So I think really the truthfully the tone of airplane is something that's just kind of innate now inside me and it's like what i want to see in some other format right i don't know if it would be a complete satire movie or if i could even pull that off but uh but that tone of sort of i call it like absurd realism is, is sort of what i'm going for and there's there's slight elements of that in phil city maybe where things get a little bit too weird um but we try to keep it real you know so that's that's what i take from it no well, reality is usually funnier Reality, well, yeah, what's the twain? Uh, truth is stranger than fiction because uh, fiction has to make sense. <laughs> yeah, nothing makes sense anymore. Yeah, but that's that's the thing. It doesn't make yeah. sense anymore. So now... Now we all just accept it. Yeah. So now well, that's the question. So what does fiction become? Stranger. I mean, it's even stranger. Yeah. God help us all. Yeah. God help us all, Norm. That's the way to... That's one way to go out. Yeah, that's our. That's a perfect ending. They, as as the cover of Airplane, the poster says, "Thank God it's only a movie." <laughs> My thanks to Andy King, who reprises the role of J.D. Castlemaine opposite Morgan Waters in the fourth season of The Amazing Gale Pile, going live on CBC Digital this Thursday, March 29th. You can check out the first three seasons right now at cbc.ca/watch, and uh, you should do that. It's fun, it's weird, and it's got lots of great cameos. Thanks also to Anne Vranich. She knows what she did. You can find Andy on Twitter at AndyKin9, A-N-D-Y-K-I-N, numeral 9. And you can find Airplane on Blu-ray and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play, but you should get the Blu-ray, and you should make sure you get the Don't Call Me Shirley special edition, which has this nifty pop-up track with uh, interview clips and stuff. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It really does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. 